0: Depending on where you are on this rotating globe welcome to another episode of the other side of midnight with Richard Hoagland my name is Jonathan Womack I'm your host tonight Richard's internet is down as many of you know he lives on the side of a mountain in the middle of the desert and uh, he often has these internet issues come about and so unfortunately he won't be here tonight and I, I know he lives for these shows, and it—you know—it—it—it it, uh, it, 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 it hurts him <laughs> to not be able to be here. You know how it is when you lose your own internet. It's like, oh
1: my god! Uh,
0: so uh, yeah, I'll, I'll sit in tonight, and uh, we have a wonderful lineup of guests for you tonight, uh, with all varied backgrounds but similar interest and some wonderful uh, experience and knowledge that they're going to share with us that we hope will help improve all of our lives. So with that said, uh, we have no news items, so we're going to get right to the show. And my first guest tonight is Russell Targ. As many of you know, Russell is the co-founder of the Stanford Research Institute, where he and Hal put uh, put together a program to study ESP. Russell uh, was a laser physicist before he had a course correction and got into the metaphysical studies, which all kind of uh, stemmed from his teenage years as a magician. Um, So, Russell, are you there?
2: Welcome to the other side of midnight. You'd be amazed how many people were teenage magicians. (laughs) <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people in parapsychology, in fact, were, got into the field because of things they had seen on the stage when they were doing fake magic, then they got into real magic. Really? I You're the only one I've heard of about that, but you say there are others. Well, Arthur Hastings, who's no longer with us, was an excellent magician, and Dean Radin was a yep. proficient magician. Ah, Hmm. And 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 other and Daryl Bem, Daryl often presents magic at parapsychology shows, so we shouldn't be losing our credibility by believing things that are shown to us by other magicians. And as Arthur C. Clark said, uh, I believe it's his fourth law:
0: uh, any sufficiently advanced technology will seem like magic to a lesser evolved race. So aliens would come
2: down from the sky and
0: and they would just seem magical to us.
2: Yeah, I have a magic trick that I did starting as a child to give people a warning not to believe, not to think that everything they see is true. The very simple card trick. You say in magic there's the effect and then there's what's really going on. The effect is, that I shuffle a deck of cards? You get to shuffle a deck of cards. You fan them out in your own hand, choose one, memorize the card, and give me the deck back, and I tell you your card. Now, that's basically impossible to do if what occurs is what actually happened. So what I described is what you think is happening, And a magician has to sell you the story of the card trick that he's doing. Do you really cut the cards? Is that really what's happening? Am I really shuffling the cards? You really get a free choice of the cards in your hand? The answer to all those questions is no. But a magician has to use misdirection so that you will believe what he wants you to believe. And people who are skeptical about ESP research, are very frightened that ESP researcher will be deceived by tricky characters who come into their laboratory and know more about sleight of hand and magic than they do. So my principal uh, prowess for getting money for the government from CIA is not that I was a laser scientist or not that I studied psychology in college but that I was a magician and that I promised them that I was not going to be deceived by any trickster who walks in the laboratory because everyone is always afraid that those guys with glasses and white coats are going to be tricked. And then everybody will be very embarrassed. Well,
0: yes, I find that uh, some scientists are not spiritual. And then other scientists are some of them lack something and they're just very like who was the guy uh, he's got a book that was a bestseller where uh, he would tell you he would claim all day long he would argue with you that none of this uh, metaphysical stuff is real until he had his own experience and he found himself um, you know he died and he went to heaven and that's that's what it took and now he's a firm believer and he will argue all day long that this stuff is real so it's funny how So he's he, arguing from, the, uh, from heaven that it's real? No, he came back and then he wrote a book about his experience I can't think of his name if I said his name you'd know him because the book was a, a huge seller but um, yeah, he's just one example and I find that, too. I I worked with scientists uh, when I was at Harvard for 10, 11 years there. I, I worked with, um, you know, the cosmologists and scientists and mind-brain people. And so I, you know, I tend to sum people up spiritually, and I found some of them were just had no real metaphysical mind to them, where others – uh, were absolutely spiritual, and they followed the science and that 's kind of the way i am i 'm been going out of body all my life, but I see it as scientific and have always had that perspective so um, now how did you what changed for you when you 're here you are working uh let 's see it 's like upstate new york you're you 're working for a company doing laser uh research and uh, i I recall you saying that you you made a breakthrough in uh, increasing the power of the laser. And so your mind is very focused on physics. But then something happened and you ended up getting into this ESP research. How did that come about?
2: Well, I had a lifelong interest in ESP. It was all through high school and college, I was reading the publications of the American Society for Psychical Research and the Parapsychology Foundation. So I was very familiar with what was going on, and I considered that a, an important field of research because it showed that a significant part of what we learned in graduate school in physics wasn't true. So I, I had a wife and three children, and I was responsible for sending them to school and paying the rent. And I was aware that most parapsychologists were quite intelligent people, nice people, are also not making very much money. So I would go to parapsychology meetings, annual meetings, international meetings, and the big problem is how are we how are we going to pay the rent because parapsychologists are underpaid significantly. And I didn't want to, I, I grew up during the Depression. And I was a kid in the late 1930s and I was aware of living in a family that didn't have any money. They didn't want to replicate that experiment. So I was not going to leave graduate school and go to ESP research, but I had the idea I was going to be a pioneer in the development of the laser. I had that opportunity, which I grabbed instead of being graduate school. And I was aware that after a certain period of time, I would be able to trade my laser cards for ESP cards and not, not be punished for going into a wacky field. So at, at the end of, in 1972, I had built a very powerful laser to that, I don't know which, if you could, my camera appears to be on, I don't know if you, John, can see where i see what's on my wall, but I have a thousand watt, picture of a thousand watt laser on my wall which is the most powerful laser in the world at that time, in 1972. And people were very interested in that. And we were going to put it on airplanes and go out in the desert and blow up tin cans. We had lots of things to do with this laser. <laughs> Eventually, we were selling it to General Motors to heat treat locomotive cylinders. So 1,000 watt laser is really a big piece of hardware in the my picture I'm cutting I'm drilling a hole in a fire brick I did a demonstration for the army who couldn't believe we could make a thousand watt laser only one meter long because theirs was a hundred meters long oh. and they wanted to know what trick we had and we were able to show them what we had done because we had published it wasn't a trick we just it was I won't even go to it. It It was sort of an air conditioned laser. It meant that we could pour tremendous amounts of power into the thing without heating up the gas. And eventually that was very, very successful. And I then followed my path. I went to the CIA and to NASA who were already supporting my laser work and said, I have something new to do. You thought this other stuff was impossible let me show you what I do, what I do now. Mm-hmm. I have an ESP teaching machine, which is a device that offers feedback and reinforcement and will allow your agents at the CIA or your astronauts in the rocket to become more psychic. Because the CIA guy can be a better agent. The astronaut can become more in touch with the spacecraft and what are the So you're thinking
0: out? if you, they lost communication, uh, an astronaut there up in the moon or, and they lose communication, they could communicate telepathically?
2: Is that no, I had the idea that they could be in touch with their spacecraft. There, there was a major almost crash of Apollo 13 where a rock or a UFO or something hit the side of the spacecraft, and they had a failure of a big oxygen tank. And it was only through the great skill of Neil Armstrong who was able to guide this twirling spacecraft and prevent a crash. And von Brown was aware of that. It was a c- case of an astronaut being in super contact with the spacecraft and was able to prevent a disaster. And I had walked in to a meeting on speculative technology and I got a chance to tell Werner Von Braun that I had a gadget right here that will help you develop your psychic ability so you can be in touch with the spacecraft. And he would really be one of the few people in the world who would actually resonate ridiculous thing that I was proposing. And I showed him how this electronic gadget worked where there were Four four colored buttons and four lights, and you have to press the button that corresponds to the light that will illuminate. And if you do that, a bell will ring. And that now is... let me
0: interrupt here. Now, now Werner came from Germany after the war. He had been working on rockets over there, and from what I know, the Germans were much more into ESP and
2: metaphysics than our military was, is that so? And like many high-level people, that everybody has a psychic grandmother, which indeed (laughs) he has. She always knew when someone was going to be coming from another part of the country or when somebody was going to die, and he was quite aware that some people were psychic. So he was willing to grab my machine and see if he could make the bell ring. And indeed, he was prodigiously successful Every time your chances are one in four getting the ring the bell. And he again and again was ringing the bell in a real crowd. And people were watching the great man here mm. really hit the extra high marks, psychic medium oracle on my game. Wow. And he then took me to the administrator of NASA, James Fletcher, and said Targ here has built stuff for NASA before, built a high-power laser. I knew him at Redstone Arsenal, and he now wants to teach astronauts how to become in touch with their spacecraft. I think that's a good idea," said Werner von Braun.
0: Hmm.
2: Now, Fletcher
0: and, was he more of a uh, straight-up scientist, or did he have some interest in ESP and
2: metaphysics? He was a straight-up scientist. My picture, I have a picture of him in a book that I've just published, a published book called Th- Third Eye Spies. And von Braun is there standing in front of his rockets, and Fletcher is standing in a, next to Richard Nixon. And that's sort of the way that they, they went. And I was only asking for $80,000, and von Braun said, that's not very much money. And he, he's at, uh, he, he's built stuff for us before. And they want to know, where am I going to do this? And I said, I had just met Hal Puthoff, who's interested in psychic stuff. He's a Stanford research institute. And who should come along at that very moment? But Edgar Mitchell, the astronaut, hmm. who just started a program with SRI. And we know that Mitchell's interested in psychic stuff. Because he did an experiment from space where people were trying to guess ESP cards, which is a task that's significantly harder to do than what I was asking him to do.
0: Now, do you know what Edgar, you say he was in contact with SRI to do a program. Do you know what that was exactly? What
2: What was he doing? He was a future scientist. He wanted to start his organization called the Institute of Noetic Sciences, Yes. which looked at the spiritual part of human beings and do research on the spirit, the spiritual part of consciousness. Ah. And he had helped Willis Harmon, who's a distinguished highest Stanford professor, would head up the organization. And Mitchell agreed to take me to meet the president of SRI, Charlie Anderson. So Edgar Mitchell, Hal Puthoff, another laser physicist, and I uh, met with Charlie Anderson. And with a promise from NASA for money, uh, Anderson said, okay, you can do a ESP program here. You just have to keep a low profile. And, of course, we did everything but keep a low profile <laughs> because our first psychic who visited us was Uri Geller, was interested in publicity, and not at all interested in a low profile. Mm. Well, I'd like to bring in uh, our
0: next guest, uh, because I'd like her to chime in now and then and uh, add to the conversation. Uh, Let me give her a formal introduction here. Elizabeth, Elizabeth Brown is an internationally renowned causative diagnostician. In addition to private clients, she works to support doctors, dentists, clinics, therapists, and consultants in identifying causative factors behind illness, particularly cancer, skin conditions, all forms of allergies, ME, I'm not sure what that is, and sets of symptoms that have no orthodox label. And you can read uh, the rest of Elizabeth's Uh, Bio here on on the show page. Let me tell you how to get there you go to our URL the other side of midnight.com and You scroll down and click on tonight's (laughs) banner and that takes you to our show page and you can see uh, The guest bios and we also have images to share you can see those as well. So Elizabeth welcome to the other side of midnight
3: Thank you, and thank you for having me. It's a, an honor, especially to to meet Russell, <laughs> one of my heroes. I'm afraid, Russell. Sorry about that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I, I think that's fine because uh, he's a hero to a lot of us. And uh, so, if you want to chime in, I, I <laughs> want to continue with Richard, uh, Richard. I want to continue with Russell, and uh, but if you if you want To add something to the conversation Go ahead and then um, I want to spend more time with you During the the second hour So Russell if you'd like to Continue um, You were just saying that You uh, Edgar Mitchell Had just um, walked By you're at NASA you're presenting This idea to Jim Fletcher that you'd like to start this Psychic program and you can do it With Hal Putoff and so along comes Ed, Edgar Mitchell, and then um,
2: what happened next? What happened next is that I found myself with, with Ingo Swann, who's, who's a prodigious psychic and art visionary artist, and he wasn't interested in card guessing or looking in the next room. He said, if I want to look in the next room, I'll open the door. You guys are wasting my time with the trivialization of my ability. Why don't you go hide someplace in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I will describe what it looks like when you get there. So Ingo, with those few words, invented the idea of remote viewing. Well,
0: he brought it back to the modern world
2: because it started back with the Oracle of Delphi, if I'm not mistaken. That would would be a a good time, yes. The Oracle of Delphi uh, was able to describe what the uh, king of Persia was going to do at a later time in his palace. And the Oracle of Delphi described very accurately in poetic terms that the uh, king of Persia would be slaughtering a lamb and a turtle and cooking them together in a breast pot with a breast lid and he told that a hundred days before the rest of the messengers could get back to verify it. So he was able to look what's going on contemporaneously but many, many miles away. And the king of Persia gave the organ the Delphi priest organization, a 100 gold blocks which uh, were seen by Herodotus, and he had them specially cast. So there are pictures of these 100 gold blocks as a gift to the oracle because the king was so surprised and pleased that he found the real oracle. But now, then well, over we,
0: time, society lost interest or for whatever reason, and then you fast forward to today, and you have Ingo Swan come along and just reignite everything, right?
2: That's right. Ingo Swann reignited it, and the fact that we were at SRI, we're, we had Stanford for our first name, and we had CIA for our second name, and we had lots of money, so... The reason that we got good publicity rather than bad publicity is that we're a wealthy organization supported by the government, and that's the first time that ever happened in the ESP arena. And the other thing that we were doing correctly, uh, in uh, Duke University, JB got rhymed with having people guessing cars, which is a very hard task to do. Because once you know what the cards are, circle, square, stars, wavy lines, the memory of those images stands as noise in your mind. If I, if I tell you, for example, if I tell you I had a playing card in my hand, hearts diamonds, spades or clubs, what do you see? Well, you, you're for, totally familiar from a lifetime of seeing playing cards. and the image from your memory of those playing cards, noise in your channel so we have to do design experiments that make it easy for the psychic to separate the psychic signal from the mental noise and the idea of mental noise was a contribution that Ingo made people from time to time would discover that the first person to talk about mental noise was the Hindu Guru Padma Sambhava who talked about the things that he says that your nature is timeless awareness. And if you want to experience consciousness out into the spatial temporal regions, you have to give up your desire to name things and grasp onto them. You have to quiet your mind and experience them. So and he wrote a book called Self Liberation. Through Seeing with Naked Awareness, Self-Liberation Through Seeing with Naked Awareness was written 1,200 years ago. Sounds like a contemporary novel on how to be psychic. And I, I'm, I'm an author of many books, and I'm always happy to see somebody's book written 1,200 years ago is still in print. Yeah. So that's, that's really encouraging for an author. <laughs>
1: so,
2: so what we were doing at SRI, is we're not having people guess cards. The setup we had, which uh, with Ingo's help, of course, is that uh, my my job was an interviewer. I was not pretending to be psychic, and they didn't want me to be part of the experiment in any psychic aspect. I would sit down with a customer often from the government, and they would come if and they wanted to see something psychic. What they had in mind is that Ingo would just do something psychic, like Ingo would describe where their partner's hiding. And I said that if Ingo does a trick, you'll think of a magic trick, and you'll go back to Washington and try and figure out how he fooled you. But instead, I want your major to go off with hell put off someplace, and you'll randomly choose a target from a pool of 60 targets, and they will go and hide someplace. In half an hour, uh, I will help you to experience where they are. Now, I don't know what these targets are, but I I will help you quiet your mind and tell me about the surprising images that show up in your awareness. I'm not asking you to name the place because that's, impossible basically naming the source of noise i just want you to quiet your mind and tell me what you're experiencing about the place and that turned out to be a particularly good algorithm for helping people to describe it right people right up to the undersecretary of defense came to our laboratory was thinking about having us teach people in army intelligence how to look into the distance, look into the future, and he wanted to see something psychic before he gave us a million dollars a year to do that and now this was
0: this is the political side of it. You
2: got into it strictly for the interest
0: in the metaphysical side, but of course, the government uh understands that Russia is farther ahead of us in this field so of- so
2: they believed. My contribution is that I found an algorithm in which most people could demonstrate psychic abilities to everybody's agreement, that we could publish the findings. That is, what we were doing different is that we were now showing, if somebody comes to our laboratories and "Show something psychic and Ingo Swan describes the, the object in the box or the object in the briefcase, they'll think of a trick. But if I tell, tell him <clears throat> that remote viewing is really very easy, it allows you to look into the distance, look into the future, and describe what you see, what you're experiencing, and you don't have to uh, eat porridge at the feet of your guru you don't have to do anything special. You just have to quiet your mind and look for the surprising image that will come to your mind with regard to where somebody is hidden. And they could be hidden in Soviet Siberia, or they could be hidden down the street in Middle Park, California.
0: Well, I think that would have been would have been very apparent when you went to teach. You picked out. You were in a gymnasium, and they said, pick out some some of our army people for your program and one of those people was joe mcmonegal who as far as i know was not into psychic stuff he wasn't a medium he wasn't any he was a hardcore soldier i mean this guy was on the front lines he's like the scout um, just uh, amazing life in, in the military and then you come into the gymnasium And out of nowhere, you pick these people. And as it
2: turns out, Joe McMonago was very psychic. Yeah, he's probably the most successful remote viewer alive today. Now, I didn't pick them out at random. I interviewed them. And Joe admitted to having all sorts of psychic experiences in Vietnam. He said he got off of his plane when he first arrived. And he saw in the distance a big yellow plane, similar to the one he just got off. And nine months later, excuse me, nine months later, when he left Vietnam, there was an Air America plane painted yellow, which took him back to the United States.
0: So he was seeing into
2: the future. And he was seeing into the future quite reliably. So he was the first one I chose for our <clears throat> program. And so we went up to our laboratory, and I said, well, Hal has gone to hide someplace with your major, Scotty Watt. I have no idea where they've gone. And, and he said, well, I certainly don't know how to do this. I said, it's very easy. If you just do what I tell you, everything is going to be all right. So in a certain sense, I'm still doing magic tricks. i have to set the stage so that people realize that I'm not testing their ESP. At Duke, Duke, uh, J.B. Ryan did a lot of successful experiments and was the father of ESP in America, but he was testing ESP and people weren't aware that they're in some kind of testing situation. Uh, I was aware that that's not a good idea. So when Joe sits down with me, I say, we know that you're of psychic ability. Everybody has psychic ability. You may have a little more than other people. All I want you to do is quiet your mind and tell me where Scotty Watt is hiding now. He's an interesting place. San Francisco is full of waterways, bridges, bowling alleys, police stations, everything you could imagine, a very target-rich, wonderful environment. Just tell me what kind of thing, don't name it, just what are you experiencing with regard to where he is? So, excuse me
0: if I can interrupt here. I'm just wondering, because today we have people that do past life regressions and they use hypnotherapy. Do you think you were... Uh, unconsciously hypnotizing Joe and these other people or you're just giving them some guidance?
2: Well, we really don't know what hypnosis is that well. I was <clears throat> I was definitely setting the stage for success. So before he opened his mouth, I had convinced him that the things he was going to say would be successful. Mm. And that made it that makes it much easier for him to describe this. Then remote viewing, we're always in our principal successes, we did do things like looking at Soviet weapons factory in Siberia, which paid our rent for another two decades, where Pat Price who was a psychic policeman, would remarkably accurately describe a weapons factory and a giant crane. And other things which were verified later by aerial surveillance
0: like can can you take a moment to tell us about the Patty Hearst incident and Pat Price's role in that?
2: Well let, let me wind up with Joe first. Sure. So so Joe. So Joe said, Well what I see is a building, uh say long building with pillars in front, as pillars are white pillars and it's dark behind them. And it's looked like there's a fountain in front of the building, a tall portion in front with the pillars, and long portion behind it, and that's what I get. And he drew a picture of that. And what's nice about working with Joe is he's an excellent uh, graphic artist. So he drew quite a nice picture of what turned out to be the Stanford, Stanford University Art Museum, which is exactly a long, low building with pillars in front and a fountain in the front of that. So he he basically made a drawing better than most people could do if they were standing in front of the building.
0: Did he draw when he was in Vietnam? Would he sit there and sketch? Did he ever mention that?
2: No, I, I, think, that the, I think that... Not to the best of my knowledge. I never heard of him say anything like that. I think that he was a... I mean, he became a, se- a senior warrant officer and I think he was in very active duty. I don't think he was drawing pictures, to the best of my knowledge. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he has a innate talent. Um, he, in, in all the work we did, he was able to draw from his imagination, his psychic sense, much more accurately than most people could do standing in front of the building. Mm. I mean, he was a spectacularly accurate in that sense. Now, I should say, to wind up with the Army, I showed six people, Hal and I showed six people, and each of them did six trials. So you would expect if they were matched against real targets, by luck, you would get a one out of six first place matches. if the, the guy drew six pictures and there were six possible locations and I asked you to match his pictures against the real places and you said, I'm going to match this one against all of the others. Then you get one right by force. So instead of getting one right from the six people, so you'd expect with six people you get six six right by chance. We got 19 right by chance, which are odds of one in a million, which is to say we showed six people off the floor of the gymnasium and they did an ESP experiment with 36 trials, significant of odds of one in a million. Do you recall what the other interviews
0: were like? So I'm just wondering how the interviews went when, that made you decide, yes, this person is psychic. What are some of the points of discussion that alerted you to the fact that this person might have psychic abilities?
2: People would always begin some sentence, well, I always something or other. I always knew when somebody was going to die. I always um, had some information I can't remember. This is now 50 years ago. This is now 50 years ago. So. Well, there was
0: one character. Um, I can't think of his name, but uh, you asked him what his qualifications were. He was a scientist, I believe. And he said, I was a demon outfielder.
2: Oh, yeah. He he was, yeah, he was not an army guy.
1: <clears throat>
2: That's Gary Langford. Oh, yeah. Uh, he, he was a. SRI engineer and Lockheed engineer at the time I was at Lockheed. So Gary, Gary was a straight up scientist and nobody knew he had anything to do with ESP. But he came into our lab and said, you know, I've, I've been interested in this all my life. And I said, well, what, what have you, have you ever done anything? Have you ever had a psychic experiences?" He said, well, in high school uh, I was a baseball outfielder. They put me in the outfield because I always knew where the ball was going to be hit. So a very successful outfielder. So, so, that's, so his success as an outfielder is what got him into our program. And later on, I was released from the lab where I. You know, I know I spent. I basically spent a, a decade sitting at a table in the laboratory interviewing people. But after a certain period, I was released and I could travel around America and people in the lab would have to describe where I was. And Gary gave a remarkably accurate description when I was at the New Orleans Superdome. He he drew a uh, circular building with a dome and a parking space all around it And it looks like a, he said, it looks like a flying saucer shining in the sun. And uh, he said to the interviewer, Elizabeth Rauscher, another physicist, do you think Russell's been abducted? And Elizabeth said, well, you can never tell. Why don't you just describe what you see and we'll see if he comes back. And his drawing, again, very greatly resembles the photographs that I was able to, take of the Superdome in New Orleans, which unfortunately is one of these things where the outbound experiment, you wonder how could an outbound experiment screw up the experimenter while all he's doing is standing in front of a building. Well, the way I screwed up this particular experiment is that it was at noon in New Orleans, and i look at this giant circular building with a dome, and I said it's 12 o'clock I'm standing in front of the New Orleans Superdome, and this looks like nothing so much as a UFO shining in the new day, noonday sun. I so thought a nice pictorial way of describing unambiguously what I'm looking at. And Gary essentially repeated my exact words oh. into his tape recorder when he was describing where I was. Oh, So you were audio recording these sessions, too. Oh, right? yes. Everything was audio recorded.
0: Do any of those audio recordings still exist to this day that
2: you know of? Well, you you can't see me on video. I was turning over to my closet where I have a whole bunch of audio tapes. uh, Still exists in my possession. Wow. Okay. In our, in our, we just made a we just made a film called Third Eye Spies, where we recapitulate an experiment we did with Hella Hammond. Hella was a brought Hella was a dear friend of ours, a talented photographer, lovely, highly intelligent refugee from Germany, and. Uh, we were, the CIA wanted, we had done, done, we had done experiments twice with a very psychic policeman, and Ingo Swan, who was a very psychic artist, and Kit Green, who was our CIA contract monitor, said, I'd like you to find somebody who's never done this before. Find a control person. And I asked Kella if she would like to be a psychic for the CIA and be paid to come to SRI, to hang out with me and my family. And she thought that would be a hilarious thing to add to her repertoire of ways that she'd earned a living. And she came up to SRI and I showed her what we were doing. And in words of one syllable, she was the most statistically significant person ever to do remote viewing in our laboratory. So we brought in a psychic who had never done this didn't know anything about remote viewing, was not a hidden psychic as far as she knew, but she totally understood what to do. And day after day, she would exactly describe, and she could draw.
0: Now, now Pat Price, um, because today, using psychics to help police find a kidnapped victim, Or that kind of thing is is more common But in the 1970s it was fairly unheard of And here we have Pat Price Um, What's the story of him and uh, the kidnap There was this famous kidnapping of Patty Hearst back in the 70s And they end up coming to... Did they come to you to ask for Pat Price's help, or how well, did they,
2: he they they came to the director the president of s r i Now, Pat had heard about our work, even though it was a secret program, and i have I never learned how he heard about our work. This is sort of a Scientology connection hell uh, put off my colleague was a Scientologist and Pat Price was a Scientologist and and, and so were some others. I was not, of course, a Scientologist. um, But Pat somehow learned what we were doing and volunteered to take part in the program. And to digress, what what he took part in was describing a building that Kitts Green at the CIA gave us as a target and the building uh, the Price described was adjacent to Kitts' building with a NSA listening post where they were listening to Soviet messages bounced off the moon hmm. and it was a secret listening post from the NSA one of the most secret things in all of America at that time and Pat Price drew a map of what that looked like, given nothing to go on except the coordinates of the place. And he said, well, the real business is in the basement. And he then read off the name of the program and a number of other code words pertaining to what was going on in the basement. And those code words turned out to be correct and top secret. So in my film, The reason that I made a film is that Kit Green and our other contract monitor, Ken Kress, agreed to be on camera saying, yes, Price was able to describe top secret current programs in the basement of the NSA, not known to any other person. And that was the greatest bona fides that we could ever get for our program, that Price was actually... Price was the only person we know who was able to read things, let alone top secret code words. So I'm guessing he somehow, before he
0: met you and got involved with the program, he must have psychically uncovered this secret uh, project you had going at SRI and then contacted you or this kind of thing. Well,
2: he came to us with a scrapbook full of pictures and stories of his psychic prowess. He was police commissioner in the city of Burbank, and he was very successful using his psychic prowess to find uh, criminals that they would run away. He would be able to tell, send the squad car through the streets of Burbank to find a frightened man running away. And he did that very successfully and he laid out the scrapbook of successes when he came to SRI. And Hal uh, then, my colleague Hal Puddle, then gave him the coordinates of whatever it was Kit Green was looking for. And Price then went home and wrote us a long monograph about what's going on at this place as a secret government facility with roll-up doors, jeeps, large antennas, and in the basement, they had this top-secret program going on. So what he revealed was so secret that the NSA went back to CIA and collared our friend Kit Green and said, what the hell are you doing sending these psychics in the most secret part of American intelligence. And we then had a visit from these angry NSA people <laughs> together with the CIA people. And the NSA guy turned to Pat Price and said, you didn't even describe what he, the target he had. You described our place, which next next door. Well, why did you pick our place? He said, Pat, Price said, you don't understand how ESP works. In the psychic world, the more attention you have on hiding something, the more it shines like a beacon in psychic space. Mm. Very interesting.
0: So then how did he, was he still working as a police officer and he's working at
2: SRI and then no, he got We, a hired, hold of we sp- hired him away. He, we immediately hired him. He was full-time with us for the next two years.
0: And then how did Patty Hearst uh, get, how did he get involved with that
2: case? Well, that would be 1974. You're stressing me back probably in, I'm going to make early, early 74, maybe March of 1974, I'm going to guess, is where Patty Hearst was kidnapped from her, house, her apartment near Berkeley University, where she was a student. And nobody had any clues at all. It was just a bunch of gangsters showed up with their automatic weapons and carried, beat up her boyfriend and shot up the place and carried her away. And that was it. She disappeared. And the police were very upset and her parents were upset. And this is the daughter of a very wealthy Hearst family, published The Examiner in San Francisco.
0: Mm. And they
2: called Charlie Anderson, who head of SRI, and they they knew. Now I don't know how the Berkeley police knew that we had a secret program at SRI. That that would be nobody's ever asked me that exact question. I I don't know. Well, some people were aware. For example. We hired Charlie Tart, who was a distinguished uh, psychology professor at UC Davis. He's interested in altered states of consciousness and ESP. But in order to work for us, you had to have a security clearance, of course. Mm-hmm. So Charlie gave a list of distinguished people who could be visited. Uh, by the FBI to see if Charlie was an honorable person who could be trusted. But the result of that, as will be obvious to anybody, is that you're revealing that Charlie Tart is going to work at SRI on some top-secret program that probably has something to do with consciousness or ESP. Mm -hmm. So at least one channel that led to the uh, disclosure of our program was the CIA trying to give a clearance to Shirley Tart and other people. But I know that this happened to Shirley because we talked to people who were baffled by what? why is Shirley Tart getting a secret clearance at SRI Was this mild-mannered guy interested in altered states of consciousness what could he probably possibly be doing top secret at SRI? Yes. And then, so Pat Price drove with hell put off and made the Berkeley police station. And as soon as he walked in, Price said, I want to see your mug book, which is a big loosely binder full of pictures of the usual suspects. The people they have collected are people who are in jail people they were looking for, and Hal and I and two detectives and, and Price stood by a big oak table as Price turned the pages of this binder and went page after page, and they put his finger on a guy and said, this is a ringleader, and his name was Donald DeVries, and there's also somebody named Wolf Lobo, and his, uh, there was also Willie Wolfe who was involved. So they now knew, had the name of the, Donald DeVries, who had been incarcerated and escaped from a minimum security prison and was on the loose. But the police knew who he was. And eventually, DeVries made himself known as part of the Symbianese liberation army asking for food and money to feed the poor people of Oakland and Berkeley. So he surfaced and said that we, we we've got the heiress here under in captivity. And if you ever want to see her again alive, we wanna get want you to start to distribute this is really a petition to uh the uh her family the Hearst family, to bring out some of their millions of dollars to feed the poor people of Berkeley.
1: Hmm.
2: And, of course, nobody ever heard of the Symbianese Liberation Army. And while people people were looking for Symbia on the map, um, the police were having to find ways to get food out. And there there was a campaign, and people were being fed on the streets of Berkeley as a result of this kidnapping. Oh,
0: I never heard but, that
2: before. But Price said, well, uh, I don't know where she is right now, but I can tell you where the, state, where the kidnap car is. They drove north on Highway 101, and they parked a station wagon across from a diner next to two tall gas storage tanks and one of the detectives said, "Well, I know where that is. I lived up by Vallejo, and they sent a squad car up there and found the station wagon. And there were still cartridges on the floor of the station wagon, so they knew that that was the so they knew that was the kidnap car. Though, of course, Patricia Hearst wasn't in it anymore. It took another year to find her, but Price was able." unequivocally to find the kidnap car and SRI was given a commendation for the Berkeley Police Department for having been a significant contribution Price was able to provide the first piece of hard data linking any people or a vehicle to the kidnapping
0: yes and uh, we have about four minutes to the top of the hour um, now Price time he is looked at as this wonderful psychic who is helping the police and and doing good for humanity but then things change over time and he becomes something as he starts working for the CIA it's like he was now regarded as somebody to somebody to be feared because of his power to see you know around the world
2: yeah, I, would, I wouldn't say that that happened to Price. <clears throat> all of the people in the program, <clears throat> well, we're all the all the great psychics were eager to not be unique. They didn't want to be uh, fingered. So we tried to make it clear that we had several dozen people who were able to look into the distance, look into the future with great accuracy. Price, Price and Ingo Swan and Hella were probably the most reliable and significant of those people. Price, right after the Patricia Hearst case, Price was convinced by the CIA to leave SRI and move to Virginia and be on the payroll of the CIA full-time to be a contracted, contracted, uh, psychic spy, psychic spy for the CIA. Mm-hmm. So I saw him only one time after he left SRI, and he was in his farmer outfit, bib top, overalls, rakes, and a rake in his hand, <laughs> pretending to be a farmer. And by day he would be over at headquarters, uh, looking at Libyan and Russian, China. Sites. In China, and yeah. and he did that very successfully. But yeah. but people were not people were were not afraid of the psychic prowess of Pfizer. Anyway, not, none of our people were involved in dodgy or unsavory activities. We were spying on the Russians, which was considered an honorable thing to be doing in 1974. Yes.
0: All right. We have to leave it there. Uh, Let's pick it up on the other side of the break with uh, Pat Price uh, living on his farm in Virginia there. You're listening to the other side of midnight.com with Richard Hogan. My name is Jonathan Womack. We'll be back after this short break.
4: Of midnight.com. Join Richard C. Hoagland and an array of fascinating guests as we explore real-world topics and events through the lens of hyper-dimensional physics. Join Club 19.5 to gain access to hundreds of archived shows. Only $9.95 per month. Listen in each Saturday and Sunday to the most compelling and thoughtful broadcasts heard in over 160 countries around the world. Real research. Real data. Real science. The Other Side of Midnight.com.
0: And welcome back to the other side of midnight.com. We're here with Russell Targ talking about Pat Price and uh, his skill with remote viewing and how he got involved in the program. And um, before you continue, Russell, I just want to ask Elizabeth, who's been very patient and quiet listening in the background. <laughs> and, I'm wondering what um, your thoughts are and, and what Russell has related so far and, you know, what you were doing back then at this time. If you were aware of the program, I, I guess it was made public in the 90s and just, um, you yeah, know, what would you like to add, Elizabeth?
3: I, I'm being quiet because I'm absolutely riveted and everything I've ever read over the years, Russell has just brought to life. I mean, every name he's mentioned, I, I, I know of, but to actually hear it from sorry Russell but the horse's mouth I mean it's it's just utterly riveting I mean I I trained in remote viewing that 25 years ago I mean I to my knowledge I'm not using it but as we said the other day it's (laughs) where does the line end between dowsing and remote viewing and perhaps I'm doing both I'm beginning to wonder that myself now but um just amazing to hear all these these names brought to life and 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 hear it and hearing it not on the pages of a book it's um it's a real privilege i have to say
0: i understand i feel the same way so russell um you were just saying about pat price and he's gone to the cia you only saw him once after that which uh, i think really sucks because you two had such a good working relationship. I mean, you were meant to be together and do this project, and then the CIA kind of took him away, and things just kind of went south for for Pat.
2: Yeah, I did most of the interviewing for the decade that I was with SRI because I was like the oracle sitting up in my shielded room on top of SRI and people would come to me. They what they wanted to do to learn how to be psychic. And of course, I'm making no claims at all for my ability. I just had, from my association with Ingo Swann, I sort of figured out what to say to allow a person to release those psychic capabilities that they have. I mean, from from the time of Padmasambhava and before. Patanjali was a Hindu teacher uh, 200 years before Christ and he wrote about people learning to quiet their mind going to Samadhi and being able to look into the distance, look into the future, heal the sick and diagnose the illnesses and that's in the sutras of Patanjali uh, written 200 years B.C. So the the main thing that could contribute is that this is not new age. It potentially gave you detailed instructions on how to quiet your mind if you're learning to be a deep meditator. Yeah, I I wonder
0: about psychics
2: of the past.
0: Say a few thousand years ago, you're born into, let's say, the south of France, um, and you have these abilities but society back then maybe frowned on these things and oh, burn you
2: burn you as a witch
0: yeah exactly and we see this throughout history so those poor bastards back in the day <laughs> <laughs> so then we have the the people in the 1970s who have brought it back and they kind of made psychic spying cool again and and the government has embraced it now and now I I also uh, feel very um, sort of inspired by your work because you know as you know I started going out when I was just a boy in 1965 I was scared to death and played dead and that worked I I really made myself dead and I I went uh oh I'm I'm dead I screwed up but I I realized the panic subsided and I realized I'm okay. And this is actually me before I came here to this body. This is my natural state. So this is like a recess for me and off I go. So years go by for 10 years, I thought I was alone. And then I was in a bookstore and I look and I see the cover of this book of a guy floating above his body. And I just, was riveted and stunned because all of a sudden I was no longer alone and that book was Journeys Out of the Body by Robert Monroe and you worked with Robert back in the day. You were friends with him,
2: weren't you? Yes, I was. I, I just, In fact, I drew a picture of his house uh, before we got there. Somebody asked me, uh, do you have any idea where we're going? I can't remember Who's from, I think his daughter, who we call Scooter, I now can't remember what her real name was. She said, my father's a beautiful house. Do you have any idea what it looks like? I said, as a matter of fact, I do have, and I drew a picture of this pretty nice, warm, uh, white farmhouse up on pillars. And that looked very much like what what we found when we got there. so That gave gave me the idea that psychic abilities may be so easy that even a scientist could do it.
0: Do you think you were picking this up from just hanging around these psychics? Did it rub off on you?
2: (laughs) It gave me permission. I was just sort of in a psychic milieu. I was with a lot of prodigious psychics and I was contributing to that as well. Yeah. I, so, I was sort of pulling in this, like, it made it very easy to be a psychic with Hella and Ingo and Pat there doing this stuff every day.
0: Yeah, that's the first time I've heard the story about drawing his house. So you went to Virginia and then you're going, how did this... Come about where you're going to Robert Monroe's house, and you're in the car with his his daughter, who later on, after Robert passed, she took over the institute that he he started there. And, and she, she and
2: she married Bob, and she married uh, Joe. Uh,
0: yeah, yeah, she married
2: Joe. Right. So, uh, yeah. So how did you
0: come to? You're in the car with his daughter going to his house. What? How did that come about?
2: I don't remember. Hmm. I I I the we were both interested in meeting one another and I don't know how the invitation came. Do you remember was that
0: before he started the institute or did he have the He already
2: had the institute. He so had I, it.
0: Okay. As I remember in one of his books he talks about um they were designing the architecture they're going to build this institute And he ends up Putting if you look at pictures Of the Monroe Institute in Virginia There you see that the main Building has this um, What do you Call it Uh, It's a a Tall cylindrical Shaft um, And That was sort of His um, What's the word I'm looking for uh where the psychic energy comes in it's this geometric feature to the the main building that is was kind of like a portal and it was helping bring in this psychic energy to this place and Well he and, had
2: people in a wooden box a lot like a coffin, and I took part I gave a lecture there once on remote viewing as we did it at s r i we were not in competition with him, of course, because he had this uh, audio feedback, everything. Yes. Which is unlike anything we were doing. But I, I was interested in having a trip in the box. And um,
0: Did you do that?
2: Yeah. And Skip Atwater led me on a trip, an out-of-body. I was already familiar with out-of-body with experiences, and he's led me to an out-of-body experience. And I visited a friend of mine, a young woman, and I was able to see her situation, uh, what she was wearing, uh, what her house looked like, and the fact that at that moment she was leaving her house with a briefcase going off to work. And I was able then to corroborate that what I had seen with great accuracy in this out-of-body experience or remote view experience. I don't have to call it the out-of-body experience because it was a visual experience like other remote viewings that I had done. But this was, this was a particularly crystal clear. I mean, now mm-hmm. 50 years later, I can remember exactly what the place looked like and what she was wearing and what it, reminds me of right now is precognitive dreams which also have a unique crystal clarity uh like the uh hemisync provides you
0: yes yeah because with me it was it was
2: different i
0: go to bed i relax uh, my heart slows down and i wait for these vibrations to come And that lasts a minute or so and it feels like your body's shaking, but it's it's not vibrating It's your energy is speeding up so that you can detach from your body and and leave so there was a Physicality to my OBEs where I actually lift out of my body and I I can stand by the bed and look down at myself and experience dual consciousness being in two places at the same time and um, but what you experienced um, at TMI uh, is more like a remote viewing where you don't take your astral, you know, you're not taking
2: your astral body out. You're just sending your mind there. So you're familiar with this projection of the astral body by Muldoon. Now, uh, no, I have a, not
0: read I have not read. Well, that was a
2: big book you you can, you can. can you see me on the Yeah, I can see you. So my camera's live. Mm-hmm. So I have this book that was written in the nineteen twenties by Sylvan Sylvan Muldoon and Herwidge is a tough name. Harewood Car- Carrington. The nineteen twenty nine Projection of the astral body. Where he describes is that you should read that because this is all this is an early early discussion of astral body and how he would travel around his house out of body. Hmm. I will check that out. 1927, I believe. Now, the theme of
0: tonight's show is indeed precognitive dreaming, and uh, we have some of your items posted on the show page uh let's see why don't we go to those your item number one is maybe cover we should
2: get, get let elizabeth describe what she, what she's doing uh maybe you've heard enough for, of me and then i'm ha- i'm i'm happy to talk about remote view my favorite subject the <laughs> most interesting thing the most interesting thing i know is that we're able to see into the distance and see into the future and our future vision is every bit as good as our real-time vision. It's just as easy to describe what's going to happen next week as it is. I, I have a, a trapped animal here. That's I, I see your dog.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Elizabeth, have you had a precognitive dream, either when you were a child or as an adult? No.
3: <laughs> no. be <laughs> that no um, I've had a lot of things happen but not not dreaming no I, I just no doesn't speak Are, to me
0: have you had the psychic experiences when you're awake
3: I, I mean all the time yeah absolutely
4: oh okay
0: yeah, well.
3: I trained so, so I trained actually remote viewing wasn't the first thing that, that, that I did I mean I when I was a child i I played with spirit children, so I was obviously aware of other uh, dimensions even then when I was three four years old um but then when I was fourteen my my first teachers came along and they trained me in psychometry, so I was able to read read objects and they started me off with holding rocks um <laughs> so, and what is
0: psycho what is psychometry
3: so so basically you you are given an object you hold an object and you're able to um, discern from that object where it came from or or what energy and information it carries so they, they first handed me a rock and I thought this is ridiculous. I can't do this. This is, you know. Then they said, close your eyes and focus on this muscle. So I closed my eyes and I, I said, I can't see anything. It's all black. And then I thought, well, it's not actually quite black. It's black. Oh no, there's lots of blue and there's some black. But oh, I can see orange flowers and oh, there's water. And they said, stop, stop. You've just described exactly where that rock came from. It, it was from underneath there, where their boat was. Was moored, um, and it, the, the the shock. I mean, I was fourteen. So the shock of that was wow. You know. <laughs> um, and so then your
2: experience gave... was visual. You were able. You were able at, to see the see the. Well, see
3: the... not just visual, because they then gave me a second rock, and. Um, And I thought my logical mind says, no, there's no way. I can tell the difference between two rocks. That's ridiculous. And they said, do it again. Close your eyes. Focus on this muscle. And I did. And I said, oh, oh, I can see. I can see bars. Oh, wait a minute. It's like a prison. And I could actually see bars. And and and, and, well, wait a minute. This is a prison, but it's not people a prison to keep people in, it's a prison to keep, it's a prison to keep people out. And then I, I could feel the fear at that point. And I said, there are, there are, there are bodies everywhere that there's, there's death. And, and, and they said, stop. And they said, do you you know where this rock is from? And I said, of course I do. I was 14. And they said, that rock is actually from the walls of Masada. And and, and as a not very bright 14-year-old, I said, what's, what's Masada? And it, it actually was from the fort of Masada uh, where I'm presuming other people, everyone knows about Masada and the fort and how everyone in the fort committed suicide. and uh, They all killed themselves um, to prevent when the Romans actually reached Masada, reached the top of the fort, they built a huge, um, it was like a ramp, wasn't it? A very, very long ramp and raided Masada. Everyone was already dead. So and they left was,
0: a psychic imprint into the stone.
3: Either, well, I don't know, perhaps Russell can answer this. Either the stone is carrying the memory of that or I'm using the. Don't connect to the location. So I don't know one or the other.
2: What
1: do you or
2: think, either? Russell? There are other there are other problems with doing experiments like like that. The 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 first place I would look to get the I'm not at all doubting your psychic abilities here, but the, the most readily available source of the information is the mind of the person who gave you the rock. So uh, a problem, uh-huh. now, not with your ability, but the problem with the experiment is it's is not a double-blind experiment. Yes. So well, one of the sources of information is the person who gave you the rock. And another more subtle source of information is the feedback you got it at a later time. And we'll, we'll talk about that later. Because I often have, or let's say occasionally have, very sharp dreams of things that I'm going to be shown the next day. So the thing is not, is not chosen yet. It's like the front page of the New York Times or what's on television the next hour, and I will have a dream built around this very unusual thing and then I will see it. It will be presented to me usually on my video monitor that I'm sitting in front of right now, a 28-inch monitor. And I get up in the morning, I grab a cup of coffee and turn on my screen to see what's on the front page of the New York Times. And occasionally the thing on the New York Times is some weird thing that I had a dream about. So mm-hmm. it's, it's very hard to tell, in a situation where the feedback is not controlled. <laughs> and this isn't this is oh, the fault with your experiment, it's an open question in ESP research. It's a very, very difficult question as we see people with better and better psychic ability, they have more and more interesting places where they can get the information. So in words of one syllable, the question that people worry about now is what's the target? Is it something you see in the future? Is it something in the mind of the experimenter? Or is it the place for the, where the rock actually came from? And I have no opinion about about that. But, but, sure. uh, but you, you asked me the exact question, uh, doesn't that show that Elizabeth was able to see Masada? And the answer is, well, uh, it doesn't actually. It could be. could be. But you have to to do more thoughtful experiments to show that she's actually seeing that place. And and not not
0: reading the mind of the person who gave her the rock?
2: That's right. Okay. or, or, my current interest. I'm interested in precognition. Can you, can you see what's going to happen in the stock market, or who's going to win the ball game? Uh, where do you, where do you look to get that information? And a number of people. We did that very it, briefly. We did that very successfully. We forecasted change in the silver market and made a quarter of a million dollars. Well, uh, the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So for a, a while ESP was real as people were pondering what we had done. This is after after SRI. And and it's unclear I I'll tell you later how we did that. But it's always unclear. We know that you can what it appears that we were doing is reading the big board at the commodity exchange. Because we're, we're selling silver short, uh, rising market, doing that successfully. So it looks like somebody's sitting in our lab reading the big board at the commodity exchange. But we know that that's very, very hard to do. You can't read anything except for past price. Um, well, we have about five minutes to the bottom of the
0: hour. I, I wanted to throw out a recent experiment I did because I've been doing these experiments experiments myself uh since uh, I was a boy going out and um you know I, I'm not a double blind this or that. I was just doing this uh off the cuff. And um in fact, Russell, I, I entered your dream one night when you told me, no, you didn't want to do the Limitless Mind documentary and uh so I went in your dream. <laughs> And the next day you called me and it changed your mind, but um, here's an example of a recent experiment. Uh, If you go to my items uh, on the show page, it would be item number five, number number four. Um, As a video editor, I spend a lot of time surfing these sites with stock video and stock audio. And uh, one of these gentlemen who he does what I do, he's a 3D artist, and um, number four is just a picture of one of his stock video 3D animations that I, I, I also saw on an, ancient, uh, an episode of Ancient Aliens. I, I go, oh, hey, that's that's Christian's, one of Christian's clips. And uh, <laughs> I use about a dozen of his clips in this show I'm doing with Maria Wheatley. It's a documentary on Stonehenge, so I'm sitting here, and I thought, you know out of Christian's six hundred and fifty stock video three d animations that he's made and they're they're nice and stylish, and he's just got a real nice um way about him and he has nothing on state parks. You know, I'm immersed in Arches Park uh, here in, in the Southwest. Um, put forth as interesting erosion, and I know differently. It's I, uh, these. This is an ancient race that has uh, sculpted all these monuments, and and it's uh, you know a hundred million years old, and and all this is going on. So I I said. I'm going to go into Christian's dream. I don't know who he is or where I I don't know anything about him. I've never emailed him or I've downloaded his videos anonymously. So he just, there's no way he knows who I am. So uh, I go into his dream and I ask him to do an animation, um, where Maria is meditating in <clears throat> at Park Avenue, Park Avenue is sort of the center of Arches Park and seems to be even the center of the planet when it comes to these portals. So I asked him to do something uh, to put Maria in Arches Park. And uh, then I kind of forgot about it, and you know I'm busy editing and doing my thing and and then um, I kind of get this ping a couple of months later. I guess that was uh, about January, you know, a couple of months ago. And I go on Christian's page there with all his videos, and I'm scrolling through. He's got he's got two new videos, and <coughs> the first video is my item number five. And this is what Christian made. It's a woman <coughs> meditating. At Park Avenue in Arches Park and here we see the courthouse towers uh, Park Ave on the left and on the right and this is where I've been immersed for the last few years so this tells me that I was successful in, in uh, the power of suggestion where I go in somebody's dream and ask them to quit smoking or this kind of thing and so um, I, I consider that experiment a success Uh, With that, we're approaching the bottom of the hour. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. We'll be back after this short break.
5: here with
0: Russell Targ and Dowser Elizabeth Brown. We're waiting for Maria Wheatley to check in with us. Uh, She lives near Stonehenge and it's possible she overslept. So (laughs) if you're sleeping, uh, Maria, I'm going to enter your dream here psychically and ask you to wake up and and get some coffee (laughs) going and (laughs) come join us on the show. So until then. Russell, would you like to continue with your precognitive dreaming? I You sent some pictures
2: uh, to share with our audience. Would you like to talk about that? Well, just comment on what you said before. It's so hard to know what you're looking at. The dog you saw walking through my office is actually my 15-pound Siamese cat. Oh, <laughs> my, my dear, my dear friend Zeno, become my constant companion lately. <laughs> yeah, I think cats are psychic And, you know, there was an
0: incident with Robert Monroe That resonates with me Because I've had these time travel episodes Where I went back to help myself And he had a similar one where In his first book He gets out of his body And something jumps on his back and freaks him out And he's he gets back in his body And whew, The next night, he goes out, something jumps on his back, and he freaks out. And the third night, he's really freaked out now because this thing gets on his back. He can't get it off. He's crying and sobbing, praying for someone to come help him. And a light appears on the other side of the room and comes toward Robert, and it's a figure. And the figure reaches behind Robert and lifts his cat off of Robert's shoulder. The cat had passed away and still slept on the bed with Daddy and Mommy. And what happened was in his third book, about 30 years later, Robert goes out of body. He gets a signal. He follows it. It's him 30 years ago crying and sobbing with a cat on his back so Robert reaches around to him 30 years ago pulls the cat off Robert's back and shows it to him and Robert quiets down and gets back in his body so this confirmed that what I was doing going back to help myself was was real and um yeah so what do you think about that Russell?
2: I think cats are very psychic. I, I believe that. I could be reading on the couch where I spend a lot of time, and I can just think, gee, it's, a, it's an hour now. I haven't seen Zeno. Zeno, are you around? And within a couple of minutes, I hear his little bell jiggling, and he comes and pounces out of my belly, and then I know where he is. But I wanted to ask Elizabeth a question as a healer, uh, on on my telephone, I get many, many notices these days about the hazards of COVID vaccine. The hazards to your health can have all sorts of bad effects like giving you shingles, which I I did have shortly after getting my fourth COVID vaccine i got shingles no doubt about it and i got i got better pretty quickly but i've no no doubt that something like a weakened immune system set me up to get shingles i wonder if you've thought about that
6: <laughs> if i could
3: just say i i don't um i'm not actually a healer i I don't actually do any healing myself. The way that I use dowsing is to identify causative, contributory, and trigger factors behind either a specific health condition or a set of symptoms that have no orthodox label. Um, And I specialize in cancer, so I'm able to tell somebody exactly what caused their cancer, their their own recipe. And it obviously varies from everybody is, is different. Um, I, it, it's going to be very controversial um, because I recently did a, a 10-hour webinar on the pandemic and the so-called vaccines. They aren't actually vaccines by the official definition of a vaccine. And um, I can, from all the research around, all from around the world, um, this is research from, from doctors and scientists
2: well, this program loves controversy, so you should feel free to say <laughs> whatever you feel. If you can shed some light on the propaganda, it'd be very interesting to know what the truth is.
3: It's, first of all, okay. Um, the, the reason I was being a little bit cautious, because after doing it, this 10-hour webinar, um, I was um, under quite serious attack afterwards, uh, warning me off. But, uh, that things have now moved on, and of course now that most of the world is waking up to the horrors of the vaccine uh, the death rate is up in every single country that gave the vaccine but there's some pretty horrific ingredients um in this this jab i 'm going to call it a jab um which would which would absolutely compromise an immune system and um, one of them which has actually been proven in laboratory experiments is, is graphene oxide which leads to the to the ruler blood clumping effect and many many other things but it does it does shut down the immune function um what graphene oxide doesn't like is um is is glutathione so Antioxidants, antioxidants, antioxidants. That's you really need to focus on that. Get the graphene oxide out, um, and get the anti- antioxidants in. That would be my 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 first comment on that. I haven't had I haven't had a single vaccine, and nor would I now knowing what the ingredients are. And it's not it's not just um, it's not just the toxins, as in metals, and there are uh, there are other metals in there, like like tungsten. What um, what what also concerns me is that um, in one of the pharmaceutical companies, that they're based on um, genetically modified chimpanzee cells. So there's a lot of animal DNA in there, which you really do not want in your body either. Does that go a, a small way to answering your question.
2: Well, there's certainly a lot, <clears throat> there's certainly some literature now that there are significant number of cases of shingles turning up. Do you, yeah. do you know anything about cancer being stimulated by the COVID vaccine?
3: Yes, absolutely, yes. Um, a- a- according to the groups of doctors who have done, and I've been researching this now for two and a half years, um, according to the doctors now what they're seeing is that there is a huge acceleration in the speed of the growth of the cancer response so you might have stage 1 cancer and then two weeks later you've got stage 4 cancer um, it, it, it's a hugely hugely fast growth um, uh, but, but I have a different way of looking at cancer it's, it's uh, to me a cancer is part of the body's defense system uh, but when your body is under attack like that, this is why um, the body produces this cancer response. Um, but but yes, absolutely, this is what doctors are seeing all around the world.
2: What can a person do if they feel like they're under attack from this ca- cancer?
3: Depends what caused it. That would be my answer. I mean... It, if they had a cancer, if they had cancer, I need to know the underlying conditions to, that would lead to that in the first place. Um, I and mean, there are very roughly, there are three main groups. So um, it's either a crisis of toxicity, which a vaccine obviously would give you, a crisis of nutritional deficiency, which having those toxins in the body um blocking receptor sites would stop the um uh, new, the nutrition that you're getting either from supplementation or your food, from being either bioavailable or, or absorbed into the body. And thirdly, and, and this is one of the most important underlying factors, is, it, is actually either a mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual uh, state, um, let's say sort of uh, inappropriate conditioning, And under that heading, I would also also put things like um, uh, bereavement and um, uh, suppressed stress. So those are the the three very big groups. And underneath that, the subgroups, um, there are many hundred, depending on the lifestyle and the conditioning and the nurturing and the nature of the person involved. And Cancer is complex. It's, it's never going to be one causative factor. It's a complex um, combination of several. So when I'm doing a cancer case, there may be five causative factors, um, two contributory factors, and one trigger factor. So that's sort of the, where I start from, and then we identify exactly what those are. And the benefits, of course, are managing symptoms or being given carcinogenic orthodox treatments um, it means that you can actually address the symptoms and mitigate them or remove them or or address them in terms of uh, for example giving the, the right nutrition it has to be the right nutrition
0: what do you think very, about that
2: Russell I think it's very interesting where well, you're talking about anti yeah, are you thinking about things like vitamin c um
3: i i would probably steer clear of vitamin c because um 90% of vitamin c is isn't actually vitamin c um these days it's manufactured it's, it's synthetic in a laboratory usually made with um genetically modified corn bacteria um when we say vitamin c i 'd want to see the vitamin C complex that has all seven or eight compounds in there, which is which is from a food or a plant source. This is the most important thing. it cannot be an isolate a synthetic isolate it has to come from a food or a plant source so if you 're getting a nutritional supplement, it has to be um, uh, there with all not just, say, the vitamin C, for example, but with all the cofactors. Because if you don't have the cofactors, it's not available to the body. It's not bioavailable to the body. And what happens is the vitamin C isolate, goes around the body looking for the cofactors so it can be processed by the body and be useful to the body. So there are <laughs> really caveats to every nutritional compound. So, so vitamin eat some C,
0: blueberries is what you're saying.
3: Wild blueberries, yes. But if you want if you want a concentrated form, then you then you look for a supplement that the ingredients are wild blueberries or um, kiwi or broccoli, or and and you can get these supplements that that are actually the essence of the of the of the food, um, but but in powder form or sometimes in liquid form as well. But, but there's no point if you start putting nutrition into the body that is um, synthetically produced in a laboratory, more often than not from um, from petrochemicals. That's just going to make things worse. And this is why you have people coming out saying, "Oh, well, nutrition doesn't work. You know, this doesn't work. That I've taken this vitamin and that doesn't work." No, because they're taking the wrong form. It's a huge market. It's it's a it's a it's a very lucrative market worldwide.
2: That's very interesting. Thank you. <laughs> where where could we where could we read more?
3: Where can we read more? I I just well, um, I will give you because I don't want to do any advertising on 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 this program, but I will give you a nutritional company that all its products are made from organic. Uh, or biodynamic food um, or plant sources um, that are very high quality.
2: Hmm. Okay, John, could you tell us who that company is? Well, I think that's
0: for the after party. I don't know you You can go ahead and advertise if you if you like Elizabeth. That's fine
3: They nothing to do with me. I just didn't know what your rules and regulations are. Um, there is a company there in America. They're actually based in Virginia. They're called Touchstone. They have extremely high uh quality products um I've never known any any uh nutritional products quite like these. Um, They do a product called Touchstone Essentials, which is all antioxidants. That's probably where I would start. But they also explain what I just explained to you very, very quickly and very briefly. They will go through each product and explain why they do what they do, why they don't use isolate. So you'll never see um, vitamin C, 1,000 milligrams. You'll just see vitamin C, and the, the ingredients are, are listed. Um, it's the same with vitamin D as well. Most people taking 90% of vitamin D is complete and utter garbage. It's usually made from um, lanolin, from sheep's wool. Um, often with the um, um, inherent toxins from what sheep sheep are exposed to, sheep dips and and chemicals, what Touchstone do? They have a product which is a a vitamin D product, but it's made from um, a particular type of, of mushroom. So it's bioavailable to the body. Vitamin D. I would never take in huge, massive quantities. People think, oh yes, have you know, 1,000 IU's or 10,000 IU's of, of vitamin D. No. It, uh, what vitamin D is is actually a steroidal hormone, and when you flood your body with a steroid, steroidal ho- hormone, and those sort of quantities, you're putting more stress, stress and pressure on the body, uh, and particularly the liver that has to detox it. Um, what you need is something, again, that's bioavailable to the body, that's that's mm, in accord with the body's working. And um, in quality doses that are bioavailable, not massive doses, that you have to detox half of it. Steroidal hormone will also um, unbalance the body because you, you have to – it has to process it and it's putting more stress on it, on the body to do that. So smaller amounts that are bioavailable, the so, so touch do also do a um, vitamin D. Um, it's called, um, it's called Super Greens Plus D. But they explain all this on their website. They're very, very good at doing that and all the reasoning why, why they do, what they do and why they do it.
2: That's very interesting. You see, for a scientist, it's a nice example of how do you know when you know something. You see something come by and say, that's a beautiful dog, and then you learn it's a cat, you're very disappointed. (laughs) Or similarly, you read read in a paper, um, it's very important for elderly people to take this um, vaccine because uh, COVID is particularly bad or dangerous for elderly people. And on the other hand, you read that the vaccine is particularly dangerous for elderly people because it uh, weakens their immune system. So what one side says the vaccine is important because it'll save your life from the disease. On the other hand, people are saying you shouldn't take it because it'll kill you. Now you would think in the 21st century, or 23rd century, so that I've been asleep for 200 years, <laughs> uh, the 23rd century, we still can't decide whether a popular vaccine on the market is important because it will kill you if you don't have it or it might kill you if you do have it. You would think that by now we'd be able to solve a question like that.
3: Oh, well, we can solve it very easily. Um, all I would say is follow the money. <laughs>
1: yeah
3: yeah
0: i I take uh, a wonderful supplement. I have arthritis, advanced arthritis, and uh, this company is called metagenics mm-hmm. and it's a basically a, a fish oil thing where i've had fish oil before, but not like this. This stuff is as soon as you open the bottle you you understand something is different because you can, the smell is just incredible and it's wonderful smell. And you take one of these gel caps and you can feel the concentration is off the scale because I've taken these other fish oil pills and you don't know anything's happening. You wonder if something, if it helps or you just kind of take it out of good faith. Whereas this, this metagenics, these gel caps, you can feel them. Oh, my God, like it's honey going into your joints. You, you can actually feel it working. It's, it, you notice the
2: difference right away. Or if you're a yeah. psychic, you can tell just by holding the bottle. <laughs>
3: Absolutely. <laughs> and if you're a dancer, then you calibrate the bottle. To how much is this in, in my best interest? Um, oh how much is it to my detriment to take this supplement? How much is it, how much is it this product in my best interests and calibrated on a scale of one to 10 or as a percentage, how much is a supplement to my detriment? That's and, interesting and because
0: I, I take, it says to take two a day, but I, I take one because that seems to work for me. Just taking mm-hmm. one.
3: Oh. Again, you can, you can douse on the optimal dosage. What's the optimal dosage today, this week, this month, how long? That's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm using dowsing for also. Hmm. And I would never leave, never, ever leave a supplement, you know, just to have faith in it. <laughs> um, because the companies, they excel at, at marketing and um, ruthlessly. Excel at marketing um, my uh, proof ways to doubt then you're getting the truth as long as your mind is programmed for only the truth only the
0: now, truth. when you say dowsing are you talking about you're holding that rod in your hand and you put the rod near the bottle of uh, vitamins or how does the dowsing come into play
3: well whatever tool you use, I mean I do use rods because I was taught with rods in America by the way, in, in Virginia, um by an amazing man who, who teaches Native Americans their lost arts. He told me to douse in one night. Um so I using rods or some people use a pendulum. Um for me I don't need the bottle. I don't need I don't need the object there. I I just extend consciousness. Um, to connect with with the product and and Dallas that way.
2: Good for good for you. I think that's a straight path. I can, I can tell you an experiment that's a little bit like what John is doing and what you're doing. Um, um, in 1982, Hila and I were both getting ready to leave the Sri program. As we're becoming more and more applied, find this airplane, uh, find this kidnapped person. And that's, that's okay with us. We're in favor of that. But neither of us were interested in perfecting our ability to become psychic spies for the CIA. That's not what we were interested in doing. But our CIA contract monitor, Kit Green, asked Kella and me, if we... Uh, could describe what Premier Brezhnev's office looked like in the Kremlin. He said, neither of you have ever seen his office, right? And we both laughed and said, no, we've never never been to the Kremlin. have no idea what the Kremlin's office looked like. Do you know what it looks like? And he laughed and said, no, no, I haven't been to the Kremlin either. Uh, so w- we agreed. Our, our target was simply tell us what... Brezhnev's office looks like in the Kremlin that was was the targeting instructions so I sat down in my easy chair lay down on a couch and I said "Uh, well quiet your mind We're we're going to the Kremlin today and she said yeah I understand that I said well once you're in the Kremlin what do you see and she said, well, I'm walking down a corridor, and there are beautiful red draperies hanging from both sides of the wall as I walked down the corridor. And there's crystal chandeliers overhead. And I see, and then what happens? And she said, well, at the end of the corridor, there's a door covered with red leather, and the red leather is held in place. By large brass upholstery tax, and I said, "Do you think Beths are a target?" And she said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, what's going on inside?" She said, "I can't see. The door is closed." And I said, "Okay, I'll open the door." So I said, "I said the door is open now. Can you see what's inside?" And she said, "No, it's dark. It's, they're ten. They're eight hours ahead of us." I said, okay, I'll turn, I'll turn on the lights. Now we can now we can see there. And she said, oh, now I yeah I see the large wooden desk with a glass plate on the top of it, and that's on the right as you walk in. On the left side, the big window is open, looking out at uh, Red Square. I can see the famous Saint Basil's Church with the with the colored domes outside. And, and behind the desk, there's a doorway right in the wall, right behind the desk. And I said, oh, let's open the door and see where the doorway leads. So as you catch on, uh, I'm sort of traveling with her. It's not a out-of-body experience exactly, but I'm turning on the lights for her and opening doors. And then we go down this passageway, and she said, well, it looks like a big computer room on the right. There's just banks of computers. And I began to feel frightened. I was aware that the Russians are very interested in the psychic stuff. And I told her, I think that they've noticed we're here. I think it's time to get the hell out of here. We've seen enough. Let's leave. And I terminated the experiment.
1: Hmm.
2: Two years later, after I left SRI, I was invited by the Soviet Academy of Sciences to lecture in the Kremlin on the unclassified parts of the work we did, work we had published in Nature magazine or the proceedings of the Institute of Electrical Engineers. And I gave a nice talk there. I uh, let's I hold
0: it there, Russell, because we're we're at the top of the hour, and uh, when we come back, I'm going to open up the phone lines, and if you'd like to talk to Russell or Elizabeth, if you have a question or an anecdote you want to add, uh, you can call us at area code 917-889-8802. That's 917-889-8802. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight with Richard Hoagland. My name is Jonathan Womack. We will be back after this short break. fine uh keith is having a technical difficulty with the commercial break so uh what we're going to do is um maria wheatley has joined us for the third hour and uh welcome maria can you hear me okay
7: yes i can hear you fine hopefully you can hear me
0: you sound wonderful Uh, how's the weather over there in uh uk cold Same here. Although it's getting warmer, spring is in the air. Yeah,
7: it certainly is. It's great. It's great to hear you all. It's great to be here. Thank you.
0: Yes, we've been having a a wonderful discussion with Russell and Elizabeth. And um, as I said before the break, we're uh, going to take some calls. And when Keith gets situated, I guess there's a caller on the line. So... um, Why don't we go ahead and let's see. We left off. Where did we leave off? That was Russell.
2: I I was in the Kremlin. Yeah. And they asked me, thank you for your, I gave a talk about remote viewing and how we could see anywhere we wanted to look. I didn't tell them we had looked into their weapons factory. They wouldn't (laughs) like that. (laughs) But I said, what we learned is there are no secrets anymore. A person can focus his energy and describe whatever he wants anywhere on the planet, present time or in the future, into the huge rattling of teacups in the audience as people took aboard in the Soviet Union in 1982 that there are no secrets anymore. Well, you may recall,
0: Russell, I asked you about whether you thought she was tracked because... Uh, when I'm out and about, sometimes I deal with some nefarious characters and I make an effort not to leave any kind of psychic trail or imprint that can be tracked back to my you know, little waterbed space, which is my kind of sacred area there. And I wondered if someone had tracked Hela. She She's uh, looking into the Kremlin and into uh this office here, and I just wondered if one of the psychic Russian spies had detected her and then followed, tracked her back to SRI. But you don't think that's the case, right?
2: No, they knew about SRI. My concern and my feeling is that they detected our presence inside the computer room at the Kremlin. I had a lot of clearances, up-to-top clearance, up-to-top secret clearance, but I had no clearance to be in the Russian computer room. So two years later, they asked me, is there anything you'd like to see as long as we're here in the famous Kremlin? And I said, yes, I'd like to see uh, Prime Minister Brezhnev's office. I don't need to see the prime minister, but I'd very much like to see where he works. So they walked me down the hall. And I could see the hanging brocade that Helen described. They got to the red leather door and I actually heart skipped a beat. I was sh- totally shocked when I saw this red leather door held in place with a brass upholstery tax, exactly as she described. And there it was in front of me. They opened the door and I could see his big desk on the right and St. Basil's out the window on the left. I can't remember now whether there was a door behind a desk. I simply can't. Maybe if somebody would hypnotize me, I could tell whether there was a door. But I I was leading a whole parade of Soviet (laughs) military people, so I wasn't asking I was trying to avoid problems. Thank you very yeah. much for letting me see where he was. I'm very happy. Thank you. Thank you. Let's get out of here. Yeah. So, Your okay. hair must have been standing
0: up on end.
2: Right. Even more than usually. <laughs> uh, so anyway, it was a totally successful experiment on her part.
0: Well, uh, we have a caller on the line. Keith, are you there? Uh, can you bring the caller in? What's your status there?
2: Oh, sorry about that. Um, the caller we had, Jeff, he's not—he's not on the line anymore. Or oh,
0: okay. Yeah, we have right.
2: another—we have another caller, but I think he's, they're here to listen. I wasn't able to screen him yet. Uh, give me a few seconds. I'll be back with you. Talk a bit.
0: Okay. Well, in the meantime. Um... Maria, would you like to tell us about uh, your experience with, you've been dowsing your whole life. Your father was a famous dowser in the UK, and you're following in his footsteps. Now, you, how do you use dowsing?
7: Well, dowsing can be used on many different levels. It can be used for finding substances in the ground, as we know, such as underground water, or it can be used on more of a spiritual level to find lost objects in the landscape, for example. So you have one branch of dowsing that is deemed quite masculine where you just ask a question of a dowsing instrument, such as a pendulum or an L-rod. You're asking questions to ascertain an answer, or you can do it in a more feminine, what's called sacred spiritual manner, where you ask the landscape, should you be dousing it? And you're always asking the pendulum before the question, can I, should I, may I ask this question? So there's two different styles of dowsing, if you see what I mean. One that's very direct, that in a way is more like remote viewing, where you just look into something because Mm. you feel that you want to. Or the other side of the dowsing, which I do, is you ask the landscape or the ancestors or whatever it is you're going to be looking for, should you actually be doing that?
0: Now, Elizabeth, are you a psychic dowser or which branch are you?
3: Oh what a question um no i'm I'm going to put a third branch in maria <laughs> um, i i don't, i mean so, what does psychic mean that that was what i'd say I'm firmly though feet on ground, and what I believe we're doing is totally in accord with quantum physics. We're extending consciousness, accessing um the quantum field, the field of information um and and um, retrieving information that that's how I would um, describe what I'm doing so I'm either I'm either accessing the the field the quantum field or the personal field of the client when I'm uh, doing their health
7: well, when I discovered, for example, the elongated skulls of Stonehenge, it was oh, direct with, I mean, we can say consciousness and things like that. I'm, I'm a bit more of a kind of druid uh, to, a, to a certain regard. And when I discovered those skulls, it was because the landscape called to my dancing techniques. Uh. So it, I don't go out there into the kind of background consciousness. It's waiting for, the, for those ancestors to connect. And recently I've done just uh, another very major find in the ancestral landscape through, uh, through the energies of the land contacting me because I've got, uh, you know, I've been to these places like Stonehenge and, you know, downstill for most of my life. I'm the most experienced downstill in the genetic system of earth energies. So I listen to the call of the land. Mm.
0: Well, that's very similar to what where I'm at. I'm immersed uh, spiritually in um, Arches Park, and I cannot sit still and let this interesting erosion myth and the conditioning that uh, people look at these monuments as interesting erosion is, um, well, it doesn't sit well with me. And I feel them calling to me, At this point in my life, you know, I first saw this when I was a boy, and I went on to write uh, about it in my fictional novel, Old Souls, which is about Mars. The Martians escape the the planet's destruction, and they land on Mars. This is 65 million years ago. They land in Montana. They build these monuments and all these underground cities and all this stuff. And then here we are now years later, and um, I see Arches Park. And I just feel these people are calling to me in a spiritual way so that um, I can help uh, dispel that myth and get people to see what's there. I mean, all all the libraries, there's temples inside these monuments, there's artifacts waiting for us. There's all this wonderful stuff waiting for us. And yet, today, for example, I watched... Um, a Discovery Channel uh, documentary on Alulu, Saudi Arabia, which is another area that's exactly like Park, uh, you know, Arches Park in, in uh, Utah, and it's the same people and it's the same timeline. This goes back 150 million years, and um, and yet the documentary is about all these professors and. Archaeologist and they're converging on Alulu to look at these um, these things that are they're kind of like the Nazca lines or something. There's the there's triangles and things and they're they're about 2,500 years old. So the irony of these people walking around in the middle of these monuments and they're looking at something that's 2,500 years old. Meanwhile. Right at their back Where they could reach out and touch it Right at their back is a cliff mural With all these hieroglyphics That to me are like a neon sign On the Vegas Strip And yet these people are Completely blind To these magnificent Structures and monuments All over And they're looking at something that was made yesterday And and they're they're standing among these monuments that are millions of years old, and I'm thinking, how the heck do we get you – know, how did we get here, and how do how do I get people to see? So what I'm going to do is take stills from that show, paint them so that these folks can see it, and I'm going to send it to these uh, professors and archaeologists and say, hey, hey, look around you, open your eyes, look at this stuff, forget about what was made yesterday – this is what we need to uh, – we need some linguists to figure out the language that is all over these murals. It's all here waiting for us. Let's get this done. So that that's where I'm at. So I can relate to you, Maria, where you feel yeah. the land calling to you.
7: Absolutely. I think you, what you need to do, Jonathan, is not just go to any archaeologist, but go to what's called a landscape archaeologist, because a landscape archaeologist looks at the wider – Environ rather than just one part of it. I've studied uh, landscape archaeology with uh, Lisa Brown, for example, at Oxford. It's a particular branch of astrology. You'll get, um, rather, an archaeology. You'll get more answers from them. And also, when I was at Charco Canyon, it's amazing sacred site, as you know, in, in America. And it's very similar to some regards to sites over here because you have the Great North Road coming from what's called an emergence point. And that great north road is like an emerging point of a ley, a ley line. So you've got that great north road. But in the Hopi and and, uh, Navajo traditions, that's where the people came from deep within the earth. They came from within the earth. They walked that road because it was such a sacred point where Mother Earth gave birth. They walked down the great uh, road and gave the site of Charco Canyon, which is on an immense circular earth energy pattern, and built the great houses there. And we have exactly the same kind of myths in this area where you get le- uh, ley lines and earth energies, their birth in alpha points it's called, where they emerge from the earth. So I do see similarities. But yes Jonathan, I'd go for landscape archaeology.
0: Okay, uh, we have a caller on the line. Uh, Keith, why don't you bring in uh, whichever caller you want? Uh, let's see, Robert, Robert Morningstar, are you there? You're on the other side of midnight.com. Nope, not there. Okay. Um, I am here. Keith asked me to mention to the audience that uh, clocks are supposed to be uh, moved ahead one hour, and I forgot about that, too. My gosh, it's that time already. Yeah. Can, can you hear Robert? Oh, yes, I'm is that here. Robert? Okay, we have Robert on the line. Uh, how you doing tonight, Robert?
5: Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm enjoying the show. And the reason I'm calling is that I think that Russell asked a very important question about the mRNA vaccine. And he is quite correct. It is something that does debilitate your immune system because it's based on the same model that HIV uses to invade the body. HIV invades the body with a retrovirus, and what Pfizer and the others have done was substitute mRNA which effectively changes your, your, genomic, uh, mechan- your genomic identity and makes you a factory for spike protein. But the good news is that there are protocols that are therapeutic and prophylactic. They worked before. They were developed by Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, and um, it's quite detailed, and so, Russell, I'm going to write you a very long email tomorrow explaining uh, everything that you can do you asked the most important question that anyone could ask in this day and age and you are exposing one of the worst things that has ever happened to mankind and that's basically all I wanted to say thank you for the question and I'll be in touch with you but my friend Jill has a comment or a question that she'd like to ask she's also quite
1: expert on this
6: Yes. uh, Hello. I would like to also thank you for uh, this discussion and suggest to you uh, that in discussing that um, shingles, uh, that you felt that you may have had shingles, um, I would like to propose that um, there may be more to this uh, shingles than than we realize and that actually Uh, people coming down with these effects, vaccinated and unvaccinated, because of the uh, nanotechnology that we're all being exposed to now. um, Upon looking more carefully at the shingles reaction uh, with a simple magnification of about 15 times, Um, If you carefully wipe your skin and examine what you see under magnification, you might actually be able to see um, that the body is trying to release some of this um, hydrogel um, graphene oxide structures and more than that as well. Um, So I would just like to uh, encourage people when they feel that they have shingles, that there may be something more going on with the body trying to detoxify from this um, nanotechnology. Uh, And uh, thank you for the mention of Touchstone Essentials. They also make a wonderful product.
1: Thank you
0: Jill. Uh, what do you think about that Elizabeth?
6: Yeah, yes. she's um absolutely
3: touched on and I think what she's going to say the product is is called Pure Body um Pure Body yes. will yeah <laughs> it, it will um uh, detox uh, nanoparticles it's an excellent um form of, of zeolite highly patented and secret the, the way they've actually modified it. Um uh, and what I've discovered, not only will it clear nanoparticle toxins from the from the body from vaccines, it will also clear nano from um, uh, geoengineering or, or commonly known as chemtrails as well. Exactly. Oh, thank my...
6: you so much. Oh. Thank you, <laughs> Thank you for
3: uh, well, uh, well, thank we
6: you the We get the chemtrails night. Great here. Deal.
5: We'll keep listening. Bye.
0: Thank you, Robert. Um, yeah, it reminds me of like being at, at Harvard, where I feel like the students are dumbed down. And you know, we're we're on Appian Way, and I point up to. I watch the sky all the time because I I fly <laughs> around at night, so during the day I tend to look up, and a lot of people don't look up, and so um, I'm with some students, and I point up to the sky, and I said, "What do you think about that?" And there's a tic tac toe pattern and the planes are yeah. spreading and stuff. And they like, go, oh, those are contrails. And I, I say, I, they're not contrails. These these are chemtrails and they last a very long time. And it it has to do with uh, weather modification from what I understand. And they're like, nobody can control the weather, Jonathan. Come on. So, yeah, that's how it is. <laughs> now, Russell, how, how did you get rid of the, the shingles? Did they go away on their own? Did you, was it your body detoxifying itself? No, they
2: gave me a uh, very old antivirus uh, material. I, I once had a virus infection a long time ago. I was injured by a laser, and I got a... Uh, viral infection, and I can't quite remember it, it's the it's the still most common antiviral medication if it, and i'm not I'm not going to be able to remember it mm-hmm. uh, but i was, I was given it something that at the time that I was first injured, which would have been uh in the 1970s, it was new, and they were still using the exact same stuff uh, as the antivirus for shingles. That worked pretty swiftly. I, w- I was entirely better in three weeks.
1: Hmm. No.
2: It's like it's like uh, a That That's 90% correct. It's not entirely correct. Well, well, recently, though, I mean, you said you had the vaccine, and
0: then you had some shingles, and but it went away. So did that go away on its own?
2: No, it went away because I took medicine that cured the Oh, it's the same medicine. Oh, okay. As, I see. That is, I, I was damaged by a laser, which is a long story. Um, I was protected from, from infrared, but I was burned by ultraviolet that damaged my cornea. And the he got a viral infection hmm. a, 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 a my brain is slowly coming together it's called acyclovar oh a very common antiviral yeah. it's like the antiviral yes, maybe it's the only one anyway that that worked very quickly for me that is within a few days, I was close to asymptomatic, and at the end of three weeks, I was entirely well.
0: Hmm. All right we have about seven minutes to the bottom of the hour and um, a question I had for Maria is how did dowsing figure into I've seen pictures of your father walking around what seems to be a a crop circle and he's got the dowsing rod in his hand and, and what is that about?
7: yes i mean a lot of the a lot of the crop circles are man-made in this area of wessex uh, for sure so i would say about 80 90 percent are man-made i know the world's greatest crop circle maker for instance and what they can do is absolutely artistic but going back earlier to to the 90s where the the energies of the circles were just manifesting my late father was taught by a very top European master dowser, far, far greater than anyone was in Britain in that time. And and Dad also knew people like Hamish Miller and Paul Broadhurst, who were just discovering at that time earth currents. So what it was felt about these crop circles, and many of them I doused with him as well, was they were manifestation points for a particular type of energy that comes up out of the ground in quite a big force actually and goes in a clockwise or anti-clockwise direction that also goes back into to the earth it's like a it's called a funnel in terms of earth energy formations so the crop circles over here, they've become into two camps now, the genuine ones and the man-made ones. But if we interact with this type of energy, And interestingly, the Knights Templar, they would incorporate it into their churches and the masons, into their lodges, for instance, because it can really expand the the consciousness. And when it's integrated into a medieval church after the Knights Templar, this type of uh, funnel energy is called the bishop's run. And the bishop doesn't run in this instance, but walks (laughs) around the church in a particular manner. And when that uh, was walked around the church in that manner, it can really expand you spiritually second to none. So what was happening in the 90s was you had hundreds of people going into these crop circles, all of whom and many of which had that automatic expansion of consciousness. That's why the new age at that time in the UK really took off because people were interacting with that type of earth energy.
0: Wow. Now, this is the, the actual crop circles, not the man-made ones. And the exactly. actual crop circles, what your father felt they came from, I mean, is it UFOs doing this? Where, what causes these crop circles? Is it Earth energies?
7: I think it's a mixture of both. I mean, some of them are like pure Earth energy, and they're always associated with aquifers. That's one thing that the research gave out, was where, wherever they are, they're associated with uh, a type of yin aquifer, that's water that's chemically produced within the earth, independent of rainfall. But a lot of the researchers that were out in the landscape at that time, were seeing things like earth lights, or bowls as they're called now, around crop circles, which have been filmed. Stephen Greer of the Disclosure Project When he was on a crop circle night watch in the 90s, he claimed that he saw a UFO land quite close to one as well. It's a very mystical landscape where, where I live, where you do see very strange light phenomena at night. You were talking about chemtrails, you and Elizabeth earlier, which I found very interesting, Jonathan. I'd just like to add, I was sitting last year at the UK's largest UFO conference, second to none, which was then in Blackpool changing venue this year and giorgio from ancient aliens came on and his first sentence was if you believe in flat earth i don't believe in flat earth but he said this if you believe in flat earth and chemtrails there's the door
0: hmm whoa so he doesn't believe in chemtrails
7: no uh, he was adamant that that this is all a kind of you know look this way and look that way Uh, As uh, you know disinformation, but I just thought I'd add that in because we all think that certain types of speakers believe in certain things and certainly they do not
0: Yeah Boy, that is uh, I would not expect to hear that from him
7: The audience did it. There was a sharp intake of breath from hundreds of people
0: Wow Okay, well, uh, we are nearing the
2: bottom of the hour, so... Um, yeah, I don't believe in the Flat Earth Society, because I have three casts here, and if the Earth was flat, they would have pushed everything off the edge. <laughs> yes.
1: Bravo! Oh,
0: bravo, yes. All right, well, uh, we're going to uh, take a little break here. You're listening to the other side of midnight.com. We're talking with Maria Wheatley, Russell Targ, and Elizabeth Brown. Uh, we'll be back in about 90 seconds. Don't touch that dial.
4: or subject. Membership costs nine ninety five dollars a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The Other Side of Midnight.com
5: The Other Side of Midnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Search the archives. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk Radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of
0: the other side of midnight.com. I'd like to uh, ask Elizabeth about her items tonight. She's got four very interesting pictures. Um, let me tell you how to get there is you go to the other side of midnight.com and scroll down click on the banner for tonight's show. that takes you to the show page and you'll see uh, items from uh, our guest. So, Elizabeth, what are we looking at in these items of yours?
3: Yeah, when I um, when I wrote the book, I wanted something r- really concrete, something to illustrate um, the dowsing process and to add something to all the other hypotheses about how dowsing works. And I went to Dr. Harry Oldfield, who, by the way, has worked at the Monroe Institute, Um extraordinary man and and biologist and and researcher, energy researcher, and he invented a system of photography called um, PIP, Polycontrast Interference Photography, and I went to the University of of Telford in the UK and Harry set up this. Um, What it actually is 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 real-time. It's a real-time system, and it's the interaction of Rather than rather than um, photography, which is electrical pictures of an object in the field, um, what he did was actually use light, use photons to show the same sort of field effect. So, PIP photography is is, is a technology in a, a real time photo imaging system that can t- distinguish between many different grades and different qualities of light, so I was dowsing at distance on a client who was probably 300 miles away it, uh, under um, conditions in the university, and um, Harry was filming me with his PIP photography. and. What you see in the first photograph the, the 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 color those bands of color are actually quite normal through through the lens, but what happened over five ten minutes of my distant dowsing uh, dowsing on the immune system of the client three hundred miles away
1: mm-hmm. was
3: the marked changes in the in the light and there was there were three main things first of all the this is what Harry was most taken with. The three things were how when we 're dowsing, how we change the environment around us, and bands of light of this shocking pink light were moving across the floor, and the light changed behind me from very intense to much more pastel colors um, and then what appeared over um that 's my left shoulder. Uh, was a white light and it grew and grew and grew over the period of filming when I was Literally dowsing you can see me holding my dowsing rods. the 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 white light actually came and Covered half of the room. It was so intense and so bright. This is all I've got I've actually got the moving footage I know these are only stills what fascinated Harry more than anything is when I'd finished dowsing, instead of just changing color or fading away, it, it just stopped. The light just completely stopped. And what he was saying was it was as if I'd um, gone to a reference library, taken out of contents, put it back, finished over, and it switched off. Which I suppose is akin to our idea of, of, of Kashet record, or what I'm saying is the, the, um, the uh, quantum field of the, the subject. So these are these are exclusive and um, unique uh, photographs, and I've got them. As I say, the moving footage, watching it. And the last thing is, and I and I talk about this, and, and I'm sure Maria agrees that. When we're dowsing, it's a whole body experience. You're using a massive amount of energy, not just physical energy, psychic energy, emotional energy, mental, spiritual energy. And um working through our chakra system, what happened when Harry was filming me was from... And I'm wearing a black top, just complete... It was in a completely white room, and I'm wearing totally black clothes. So you can see how intense the colors became um, on the um, spinal column and perhaps on my chakra system, uh, particularly the heart chakra. And the blues and the reds were flashing so quickly. It was almost like a shimmering. Um, And I use this to illustrate to, to students that you know take a break when you're dowsing don't douse for hours because it is can can be um quite exhausting to do that because you're using so many faculties on physical and emotional mental and spiritual levels
0: do you get colors like this maria when you're have you doused Stonehenge? or? I, you... I know
7: Harry Alfield, I do disagree with some of his work, but that's a, another story. Maybe not with what Elizabeth's doing, but with his earth energies, we replicated a system of his. But nonetheless, how I was taught to douse by master douse, if this might be a tip for Elizabeth's students, is yes, you're right, you don't dance for a long time, but if you're around certain energies, go to a calming earth energy, and your aura and your chakra system goes back to to normal uh, as well. So we can work with the earth in in different ways so that if we do feel depleted in energy, it's often because the the energy is what's called in European terms, as I'm sure Elizabeth knows, is electric, and then you go to a magnetic type of earth energy, and it negates that that energy depletion.
0: Hmm, well, what do you I mean, think of that?
7: With, with Harry Oldfield we went out to with one of his colleagues to stand in stones to test out some theories and I think he's got part of a system but I really do feel it needs some some more work on it but I think it, it's it's niche stage with with Earth energies. so I, 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 I I'm not a yes person and so I did
3: disagree with some of his work initially Mm -hmm. I I can't comment on that. I I know nothing about earth or very little about about earth energy. So I bow to your experience on that. But all I know this was in a controlled circumstance in, in the laboratory at the university and was showing the energetic changes that were happening specifically in the dowser's body and around the dowser's body.
7: Yes, I'm sure that that's occurrence. I was uh, specifically talking about earth energies, but uh, you know, Mm. I I respect everybody's work. I just don't necessarily always agree. (laughs) Mm, Of course. (laughs)
0: Well, the colors remind me of the portals at Arches Park and all the colors there that are invisible to the naked eye.
6: Um,
0: In the last uh, last 20 minutes of the show. I'd like to go over Russell's items uh involving the precognitive dreaming. And uh if you go to Russell's items, let's see. We have um the first one is Esalen. Uh do you want to talk about Russell, what that dream involved? Yes,
2: I, I have the idea from the past year's precognitive dream, that our precognitive dreams are caused by the feedback we have in the future. So in this case, I, I had taught at Esalen for 40 years. Then in 2012, uh, I decided I got tired of teaching the same material. I decided that's the last time I was going to be there. So 10 years later... I had a very realistic very sharp dream in which I was standing at the bridge over a river leading up to the big house where we would all get together and do our conferences with the home of uh, Mike Murphy, who was the uh, president of Esalen. And in this dream, I wanted to be with all my friends uh, where we many, many times would get together together to have conferences, try and understand what's the next thing in physics, what's the next thing in this uh, understanding of psychic abilities. And my deal that I've made with the universe is you don't get credit for a precognitive dream unless you write it down before it happens. Or in my case, if I have a very high-quality, sharp precognitive dream, I'll tell my wife about it as soon as they get out of bed. So the dream, you can recognize a precognitive dream because it's free of things you're anxious about or wish fulfillment dreams. If you dream that you're going to fail a math test that you have the next day and you haven't studied for the, for the test, that would not be a precognitive dream. That would be what you expect to fail the test if you haven't studied for it. So dreams about things in your life or that you're anxious about uh, would not be indicative of a precognitive dream. You need dreams that are unusually vivid or bizarre, particularly outside of your day-to-day activity. So I had a dream that I was at the bridge on the way to the Esalen Big House, and I couldn't go there because I didn't have enough money to attend the meeting. And of course, there, there is no money to attend the meeting. It's an it's a invitation. And I woke up. The I hadn't been to Esalen for a decade. I'm not thinking about Esalen. But I told my wife, I had this really strange dream, but I was within sight of the big house, but I couldn't get there because the r- river was in my way. And that was, so, out of my thought stream, that I, the the idea is, uh, to to describe a dream you've had that's going to come true, and avoid telling dreams that don't come true, because that loses your credibility. So I'm trying to be very discerning about what I will put in the black, big black book, in order to get credit for the dream and not lose credit by telling bogus dreams. So I thought this was a good looking dream. I told my wife about it and grabbed a cup of coffee and went to my desk where I'm sitting right now and I have a big 28 inch monitor. I turned it on and looked at my mail and the first mail I got was from my friend Jeffrey Kripal who I vaguely remembered Well, he's a religion professor at Rice University. And I vaguely remember that he was thinking about making a movie at Esalen. But I clicked on the film. I clicked on the button of his message for me. And what appeared there is a picture that he must have taken 10 years ago. Because I'm sitting in a circle in that room at Esalen in the picture in a circle with all my friends, and I'm sitting there at a meeting we had. I didn't remember him taking a picture or making a film. I'm I'm just sitting there listening to somebody giving a lecture. But somehow, the experience of having the Esalen Circle pop up on my screen uh, half hour later, I believe, was the cause of my dream at an earlier time now three men have now gotten three men have now gotten Nobel prizes for the ideas of entanglement that Schrodinger described in the 1920s these men had done experiments with lasers to show that photons that are born together stay together and what that means is that uh what I'm postulating is that your awakened awakened brain is entangled with your sleeping brain. That is, when you're asleep, you will soon have an experience that's brought to you by your awakened mind. So in this case, at six o'clock in the morning, I had a dream about Esalen, and at eight o'clock in the morning, I had uh, that exact picture shown to me. So I'm saying that my eight o'clock wide awake brain is in communication with my six o'clock dreaming brain, which is wide open to receive signals. The idea is that precognition exists. It's usually accurate and vivid because you're not looking into the future It's that your future brain has an experience, and that future brain is entangled with your sleeping brain. So they can make perfect contact, and precognitive dreams are, in general, particularly vivid and illuminating.
0: Time entanglement, really.
2: That's right.
0: Yeah. Now, what about the pumpkin? What is that about?
2: The pumpkin is really what stimulated this idea. I I had a dream in which my wife was dragging a large pig down the street. She had this enormous pig that she was dragging down the street, and I woke up and realized that that is absolutely outside. There are no pigs in my life. Uh, My wife has probably never dragged a pig anywhere but it was unusually vivid. It's sort of a, a crazy dream does not pertain to wish fulfillment. I have no wishes to be anywhere near a pig. And I was so, so sure this was precognitive. I didn't even grab my bathrobe or my shoes. I just came paddling out into the kitchen where my wife was already awake watching television. And I told her, I just had this amazing dream. We are dragging a huge pig down the street. And she said, well, if you look at the TV screen right above my head, you'll see that in a pickup truck. And I looked up, and sure enough, there was this giant pig hanging out of a pickup truck. And we then discussed it for a few minutes while I was looking at it. And then she laughed, and of course, it was not a pig hanging out of a pickup truck. It was a one-ton pumpkin because this was before Halloween, just before Halloween. And this was the pumpkin that won the American pumpkin contest, because no one had ever seen a one-tone pumpkin. And the stalk at the end of the pumpkin was hanging out the truck, because it was so large. And what I had dreamt about was what I saw in the TV screen. And the reason it's very important to me, is my vision is very poor, as some of you realize. And as I looked at, my wife was teasing me, pointing to the truck, there's your pig. She was aware that I I couldn't tell the difference between a pig and a pumpkin from across the room. And the importance of this dream for me is that the dream was caused by my poor visual impression of what I was going to see a half hour later. That is the only, the reason that I saw a pig is because I misperceived what was in the truck. See, if I, if, if there had been a, if there had been a pig in the truck, I wouldn't be telling this story because it wouldn't be interesting. The fact that I dreamt about what I would perceive when I finally saw the thing in the truck that my, My misperceived image of the pumpkin in the truck was the cause of my dream, and the only way that could happen is if the dream was actually caused by the experience at a later time. Understood. Now, you have a third case
0: here of precognitive dreaming, and it looks like it involves your parents in in the bookstore that they had when you were a boy?
2: Well, the dream I had was of an electric train running around the uh, wainscoting of the, I live in a house with a cathedral ceiling, and in the dream, this electric train was running around the edge of the ceiling with its lights on and a square front, like a German mark line train, which I don't have, and there's never been electric train in this house where I'm. I've lived for the last 50 years. I've been no kids, no electric trains. But uh, I told my wife about this strange dream, about an electric train running around the ceiling. And as, as it happens, we now have Christmas tree lights running around the ceiling where the train was in my dream. I went to my computer, front page of the New York Times. I should make you guess what it is. Front page of the New York Times was a photograph of reconstruction of the elevated train in the loop in downtown Chicago. It's called the loop because the elevated train runs in a circle as it goes from the north side to the south side. And it's an area that I'm very familiar with. My father had a bookshop on Dearborn Boulevard right under that elevated train, so I would I hypothesized that my dream that night was the the cause of my dream that night was the fact that an hour later, I was going to see that elevated train uh, on the front page of the New York Times. And the picture that we show here is exactly of a train running on tracks with a square front of the lights on just as I had in my dream. And of course, I'm not dreaming about 60 years ago in Chicago where I lived there. I haven't been in Chicago for about 60 years. So I'm not, there are no elevated trains in my life or in my thought stream. The only place I could have gotten an elevated train in my thought is because I saw it on the screen uh, an hour later. So I I like that. And these are all very sharp dreams that I could communicate to my wife in great detail. It looked exactly like a square-bodied Markline train running with its lights in a circle, and that's exactly what I got to see. And you can see it in the in the image, the, Im- the image that John is showing is uh, the image that I saw. So what I co- I conclude from that is that. It's Precognition is available, it's very accurate. We were able to harness that 20 years ago to make a quarter million dollars in the stock market forecasting whether the silver was going up or down a little or a lot. And that was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. So for uh, several weeks at least, ESP was real. Well, people digested the fact that you can make money in the market by looking into the future. Well, we we'll have not. about
0: five minutes left. Um, we have a caller on the line with a question. Uh, let's bring the caller in, Keith. Welcome to the other no- side of the midnight. Caller, you're on the air.
5: Hi, I'll make it quick. Um, I've always wondered if the entanglement couldn't be going in, in our on our brain. And we're entangled to the past and entangled to the future so that we're communicating with the future and the past through this entanglement and I've had this idea since I guess the 70s <laughs> where are you That's calling all. from uh, Long Beach California
2: asked so asking where's your physical body right now <laughs> <laughs> Long Beach, California (laughs) Yeah, I I believe that you can communicate with the future and with the past it's very difficult to prove that you're communicating with your past because let's say you're an archaeologist and you say I know this land looks perfectly flat right now but there used to be a beautiful temple right here and let me draw you what the temple looked like with all the scroll work and the towers. And somebody says, well, that's very beautiful. I'll try and do a historical analysis. And he discovered, yes, 500 years ago, there was a temple just like what you've drawn. So we don't know whether your experience of the temple is from your psychic connection of the past or whether it's your psychic connection to the future where the guy shows you the picture of what used to be here. Ah, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it.
0: Yeah, that that makes got it, but,
2: there's, but there's no leakage for the future. That If I tell you the silver is going to go up a lot and I buy silver and it goes up a lot, there's no place I could get that information by ordinary means. You've got it. The only place you can get that information is from the future.
0: Thank you for calling, Don.
2: And uh, in
0: the few minutes we have left, I just want to give a, an opportunity for Elizabeth and Maria and Russell. Just, uh, Do you have any final thoughts, Elizabeth, that you want to add?
1: Um,
3: I just want to say thank you to... Um, Thank you for the invitation and especially to be able to hear um, Russell in in person and live reliving all this extraordinary this extraordinary time uh, in history and um, and uh, Thank you and wonderful
0: Maria, what do you want to add?
3: Well, I, well again, you know Russell's
7: a fascinating person and uh, and so is Elizabeth so uh, I'm in good company Uh, And with yourself, Jonathan. Uh, But I'd just like to add, what I think you're seeing at Archer's Park Colors could be what's called the Earth Colors. And there are 12 which are related to all forms of Earth energy, and one prevails.
1: Geolantics.
7: uh, yeah, Yes, yeah. so they the geomantic colors of the earth. There's esoteric colors of the sun and there's esoteric colors of the earth as well. And it's a fascinating branch of dowsing.
0: I have to learn more about that because I, I think you're right. That's what I'm seeing at Arches yes. Park. Yes. Uh, Russell, do you have any final thoughts?
2: Uh, we have about minutes to the, the show close. I well, we want to thank you very much for the opportunity to hear what these very interesting women have to say and my conclusion is that you should try and get in touch with your psychic abilities. I know that the uh, two dowsers have done that but I encourage your listeners to quiet their mind
6: and just seconds. look
2: at, look into the distance and see what's available to you. It's that, been known for thousands of years that our nature is timeless awareness. Those are the words of Padmasambhava from 1,200 years ago. And you can move your awareness into those timeless realms if you quiet your mind. And don't try and name things. If you just experience in your meditation, what you see is you look into the distance and look into the future. It's available and you don't have to eat porridge with your guru or believe anything. It's the nature of who you are.
0: Well, I'd like to thank my guests, Maria Wheatley, Elizabeth Brown, and Russell Targ. That's the end of the show. And uh, feel free to stick around for the after party, and we can debrief. So on behalf of Richard Hoagland and the other side of Midnight, my name is Jonathan Womack. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you tomorrow night.